Hello and welcome to A Gay Old Time. My name is Nigel May. You may know me from things I've presented on the TV. You may know me as a host from my radio shows, or you may have read one of my novels. You may not know me at all, and that's just fine. But anyone who does know me will know that I am very proud to be a gay man and hugely proud to be part of a beautiful queer community. This podcast is a celebration of that community, of its many beautiful people, people of all ages, people who have fought with their emotions and who have faced struggles and emerged victorious, who have had to tread their own path in life to live their real truth. People who inspire, who aspire, and who always entertain. People who matter. Each episode, I'll speak to a person from our LGBTQIA rainbow, discuss their journey and their thoughts on our rich and varied queer community. One person, one life, one conversation, and I can guarantee a gay old time. My guest today is actor Charlie Condu. Charlie has been acting since he was a boy and gained huge recognition for his role as Marcus Dent in Coronation Street, as well as roles in other hit TV series such as Holby City and Gimme Gimme Gimme. He has been a leading light of both stage and screen and also a trailblazer in championing LGBTQ plus rights. He lives with his husband and their two children in London and has been a huge advocate for LGBTQ plus families and same-sex parenting. He was once named as Attitude Magazine's Man of the Year and has popped up on many a Pride Power list. Charlie Gondu, welcome to A Gay Old Time. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here, Charlie. Um, Charlie, I'm going to say straight away, I think here in the UK, you are one of the most recognisable faces from our queer community and have been for the longest time. But I want to start by going back to a time before any of us knew about Charlie Condu. Take me back to you as a child. What were you like as a child, Charlie? I think I was a pretty happy kid, actually. I was I was very sensitive. Um, I remember that. I was, funnily enough, talking about this with my husband today because our son's quite sensitive as well. And I was saying, yeah, I, I was very similar, but essentially quite happy. I think I had a really good childhood. So, um, so yeah, no complaints so far. <laughs> Where did you grow up? I grew up in London. We, we lived very briefly down in Brighton for a few years. Uh, so we moved down there when I was about six months and then we moved back when I was about four or five. And then I was in West London until we moved up to Soho when I was in my teens, I think. We lived in Soho and then I was there for decades really. And were you a good student at school? I mean, what were you like at school? Were you the, the typical sort of like class SWAT <laughs> or were you the rebel? I mean, did you have kind of like a, a favourite teacher? It's interesting, really, because I would say that I was a really sensible, responsible, diligent student um, and very well behaved. I did, however, get expelled from my first uh, secondary school. So <laughs> my kids would beg to differ. But um, yeah, I think that was for a number of reasons, really. I, I We didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up. I managed to get a scholarship into the local boys school, which was a private school. Uh, because we wouldn't have been able to afford it otherwise. And God knows how I got a scholarship in, because I think it was quite clear from the minute I started that I wasn't up to it academically. Um, but somehow I'd managed to pass a scholarship. And I think coming from a family that, you know, my dad was in prison, my mum was on benefits, um, we didn't really have an awful lot. And I was suddenly in this public school, a boys' school, which didn't suit me well at all because most of my friends were girls at that age and I was a little sensitive camp boy. 
um, who was out of his depth, kind of, you know, socially, intellectually, all of those things. And I think I found it quite difficult. And so what happened was I stopped going. (laughs) I decided that I wasn't going to go very much. And I was also doing little bits of acting at the time. So I was taking periods of time off anyway. And I got to the end of my first year and we got a letter from the head saying, I don't think this is really working out. I think from their point of view, they'd offered me a scholarship and I wasn't using it really. And I think they probably thought that somebody else would, would benefit more so, uh, which is fair. Uh, so then I ended up going to the local comprehensive school and I absolutely loved it. So I think after that, I was great. And I had some amazing teachers, some of whom I'm still in contact with now. So yeah, it all turned out well. So you said you were quite a camp little child and a sensitive child. I I, I can echo that myself. Um, were you aware of sort of like an otherness within you? Were you aware that maybe you were gay, that maybe that you were different to maybe society's expectations of how you should be? I suppose I must have been looking back. I I know that I wasn't into all the things that little boys of my age were meant to be into. I mean, you know, I definitely wasn't into football or Star Wars or all the things that all my mates were into. I I was very into the kids from fame. Uh, That was a big deal for me. Uh, very into leg warmers and jazz shoes. And, um, you know, I was, I, I, I liked dancing. That was my thing when I was very young. I suppose I knew that that sort of wasn't what most of the boys I knew were doing, but it never really affected me until I went to secondary school. And I think it was probably being at that boys' school where I realised that it wasn't okay to be that kind of a kid. That being that kind of a kid got you into trouble. Now, I was never bullied at school. I was very lucky, but I think I was very adept at adapting. Uh, I think I was very good at being liked and fitting in, and and that's what I did. And so that was that was the point where I, I suppose in a sense, I stopped being that camp little kid. I sort of changed, really. Uh, which is a shame. I wonder. I wonder what I would have turned out like if I'd been allowed to just be who I was. Do you think you hid it because you were not ashamed, but it was something that you thought, okay, this isn't what is supposed to be, so you internalised it, or was it a case of like literally thinking, no, I'm fighting against this? I think it was shame. I think it was absolutely shame, and I it, it, certainly in those days, I would, I would. I would bet any gay boy that was going through the same stuff wouldn't say the same thing. It wasn't acceptable. You know, it just, it wasn't. I mean, I'm talking about the sort of early 80s. We are living in a very different time now, and I think it's so much easier. It's not easy, but it's easier for young LGBT people to, to, I hate the expression, but live authentically, if you like, or at least to be honest about who they are much more. I realised that very young. I mean, I never, there was never any question that I would be in the closet as an actor, or I was always very open about my sexuality from the minute I realised I was gay. And I think it's one of the reasons that I've sort of pushed so hard to be as honest about my life as possible. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to have kids. It's one of the reasons that I wrote about it in The Guardian. All of those things are really important to me because I think it's our duty as the older gays um, to sort of pave the way for the younger ones, really, and to change the world, you know, as, as, as much as we can. So I think it was something that I must have made a conscious decision 
to do. I think it was very difficult. And I realized that life would be easier for me if I was good at fitting in. And certainly the very, very few uh, camp children, boys that I knew used to get picked on. I didn't want that. This is what I was going to say, Charlie. Were there people around you that you thought, okay, they probably are like me or they are definitely like me? Were there people that you could confide in or was it again a case of like, okay, not going there because you saw that they were getting into trouble with it? I don't know, really. I mean, I think I'm I'm, I'm talking about myself at the age of 11 or 12 when looking back, I can see that I changed. At the time, I probably didn't realise what I was doing. And... For a long time, all the way through my teens and my 20s, really, people often used to used to call me straight acting, which was considered a compliment back in those days, right? It never was a compliment. I never took it as a compliment, but it was certainly seen in that way. There was something as a, as a, as a gay guy that if you were straight acting, that was kind of sexier and, you know, more, more desirable, which is so messed up when you think about it. But it, but it was a... It was a fact. Um, and I think I'd, I I must have sort of suppressed that side of myself. Again, my husband and I were talking about this. He did the same thing. He was a very sensitive kid and ended up, you know, the captain of the football team at school and the captain of the basketball team and became a very sort of macho man, if you like, because it certainly grew in, growing up where he did in rural Alberta, it definitely wasn't acceptable. Could have got him killed out there in those days. So it was survival, much more so for him, but definitely for me as well. It was about surviving and about finding your way through a, 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 a tricky time. I think the straight acting thing is really interesting because at that time, I mean, we're of a similar age, Charlie, and I remember sort of looking at people on TV that were gay or supposedly gay, and the people that you could see were people like, you know, John Inman being Mr Humphreys and are you being served and, oh, you know, like camp characters on Dick Henry or, you know, I mean, you mentioned the kids from fame. I think there was a gay character on there, wasn't it? Was it Montgomery, if I remember rightly? And he was very kind of, I don't know, closeted and quite sort of sad, I think, if I remember rightly. So... There, was, there wasn't really anybody to look at. I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because that straight acting thing, I mean, now it's like, no, it's like, you know, let's celebrate our queerness. But back then, that was almost seen as a path to take, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I was obsessed with the kids from fame. And I remember looking back, I've seen, I've seen clips of it in more recent years. And the guy that played Leroy, who was meant to be the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of tough kid from the wrong side of the tracks... I look at him now and think, my God, he was so obviously gay, but he wasn't playing a gay character and I didn't see it at all. In fact, I think, I, I believe, tragically, the actor died yeah, from did. AIDS-related disease a, a long time ago. Um, but yeah, so for me, he was he, 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 even though he was quite clearly a, a queer actor, he wasn't playing that on television. So that wasn't somebody to identify with. And, and the only people that I would see on television, as you say, are, are the people that I felt like were stereotypes in a way and i and i didn't want to be that and and i think it's one of the great things we've almost come full circle now i think because of people like russell um russell t davis or people that are creating drama for queer people now and there are much more there's such a broad spectrum of of, of queers on television if you like it's not just the camp people that we grew up with there are all sorts and in fact when I was on Coronation Street, my character was definitely not particularly camp. And that was 
in a way, a decision because we we already had a camp character on Cory. We wanted to show a different type of gay man, or in fact, he turned out to be bisexual. Again, something that felt very important at the time. And I think now we've come full circle where you do get camp people on television again, but it's not all we get. And so those people are celebrated, you know, Rylan or Graham Norton or whoever it is. These people are truly authentic and are great role models now. You know what I mean? And I find that really interesting that we've managed to come through it. And it's because of all the diversity that we see within our community on television now. I think that's why things have changed so much. It's a much more refreshing melting pot of people that we see on TV and in the media now, isn't it? Um, Let's talk dating. Did you do the girl thing or was it dating boys all the way? No, I did the girl thing. I, I, I had girlfriends from my sort of teens, my first sort of proper girlfriend was was much older than me in fact yeah then then I I had I probably had about three or four girlfriends over the years um and then I came out when I was maybe I don't know 18 or so and then I had another girlfriend when I was about 21 um just because I met a girl that I fancied um I think I, I don't consider myself bisexual at all but I I'm always open to the possibility that at some point something like that might happen. I mean, obviously not now. I've been married for nearly 20 years, so um, I think that's unlikely. But um, I never had a problem. I like women. I I, I like girls. I I never had a problem sexually there, but I knew the first time that I slept with a man that it was different. It was right. It felt right to me, whereas it never really had with women it always felt like there was something and and so that was how I knew I think were you resolute when you were dating uh, women I mean I, I did the same I mean I dated women and I ended up sort of going behind their backs to sort of do other stuff to experiment and see what was going on which is not something I'm particularly proud to say but when I look back that's what I needed to do that was my journey so for you when you were with a woman were you resolute you know you were you were together you were intimate it was 100% you were with the woman or were there still feelings of like this isn't quite right there were definitely feelings there I didn't I didn't act on them if I was with somebody I was I was with them I never never cheated on anyone or did anything behind anyone's back but um but it definitely felt very different and I can there was part of me wanted to for a while wanted to keep trying because I thought maybe it's a phase or maybe I think a lot of us go through that stuff and so I kept you know there were there were a few times that I kind of slept with women thinking oh maybe this is you know this might be a good idea but actually (laughs) it turned out it wasn't particularly um, and that was in my sort of early 20s. I mean, in, that, in those days, I was living with Robbie Williams, who was probably sleeping with more w- women than any any other man will ever dream of. Um, and so there was we were always out and there was a constant stream of women. I think sometimes it was just like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe I will as well. And it never really worked out. Um, so, yeah, I think I tried it for a bit. Uh, and then and then once I'd sort of realised that, no, this is who I am. That was that was the end of that for me. I mean, you, you mentioned Robbie there. I mean, like I say, you've always been, I mean, I feel you've always been in my life as one of those sort of people that I see from our community and think, yeah, they're having a great time living their best life. Um, obviously, being an actor, being in the um, profession that you are, it may be seemingly easier to be open than maybe in other professions out there, especially at the time that we're talking. So was there a confidence with your sexuality or your your inner feelings, whatever that sexuality was at that particular moment, were you always confident and happy to sort of be out to those people around you? 
I think so. Yes. I mean, I, I, I told my family pretty much as soon as I realized, and I was very lucky in that they were all very loving and accommodating and accepting of it. I mean, when I told my sister who was 10 years older than me, she said, Oh, finally, you've realized. <laughs> she said she'd known since I was about two. So that was, that was kind of a nice response to have. And my mom and dad were the same. It was, it was, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it wasn't difficult because of them. It was difficult because of me and because of the world that we live in. So, yes, I think I was always, I remember, I remember my, my sort of one of my best friends from school, um, who I'm still very close to, actually, an actor uh, called Nabil El-Wahabi, who's on Trigger Point at the moment. I've just remembered that it started and I haven't watched it. Um, he was one of my best mates at school. And he is straight and he was the one person I was really worried about telling. And it took me a long time to pluck up the courage to tell him because he came from a very sort of straight environment. He was, you know, he was one of the naughty boys at school that I was not supposed to hang out with, but did, of course. And we were very close. And I was worried that if I told him, he'd reject me. And actually, interestingly, he had one of the best responses of anybody which was he gave me a really big hug and said, didn't make any difference to me. And that was that. Um, and we're still very close today and we're in our 50s now. So, you know, that, that but it's interesting, isn't it, that, that the people you worry about aren't necessarily the ones that are going to have the problems with it. So was there anybody on the flip side of that that you thought, OK, no, I'm going to be fine telling them, but actually the reaction was not what you expected? Um, there were a couple of people that were surprised and I sort of drifted away from school friends things like that um nobody that had an extreme reaction but i think i think sometimes people felt like they suddenly had to treat me differently or they had to be differently i can remember one girl when i when i said that i was gay she was she was fine about it but then all of a sudden whenever whenever we were talking or if I'd make a joke, instead of her just laughing, she'd say, oh, get you, you bitch. Or <laughs> do you know what I mean? Suddenly her whole, the way she treated me like a gay. Uh, and it made me feel really weird because we'd never had that kind of relationship. And suddenly she was like being a bit sort of, you know, I don't know, just Affected. treating me a bit like a stereotype. Yeah. So we sort of drifted apart. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's weird, isn't it, when you get that kind of reaction from somebody because you just think, actually, it's still me. I'm the same person. It's just, this is my sexuality. Um, let's talk about your acting because, obviously, you started acting at a young age as well. I mean, I think your first uh, first film was, what, the age of 12? So you were out there doing your, you know, doing your thing at an early age. Did that help build your confidence as a, as a young person? Um, I don't know, really. I think in some ways, possibly, but in other ways, I think it was quite difficult. I know... I, I'm not one of those actors and I never have been. You get some who, who do it because they like to be seen. They like to kind of not show off, but they like to be at the front. They like to be those kind of performing types. I've never been that kind of person. I never really wanted to be noticed in that way. I've always been fairly confident, but not in a kind of look at me sort of way, if that makes sense. And I think a lot of actors are, and a lot of actors are not like that at all. They just sort of want to disappear. Maybe I'm somewhere in the middle. So I'm not sure that acting made me, me confident in that way. But it definitely gave me, I think being a child in an adult world from a young age, that was, that probably, I, I probably grew up um, quicker in a lot of ways. 
but yeah, I don't, I don't think it was that necessarily that made me more confident. What are your happiest memories of being a child actor? Because I saw a photo recently when sadly David Soul died, uh, and I know you worked with him, and there was a picture of you and him together, and I thought there's such a lovely sort of memento and a celebration of that man's life, but also of your journey to where you are today. So, what memories have you got from that time? And are there other people that you remember working with and just thinking they were so instrumental in moulding Charlie Condu as he was then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was I was so lucky in that I got to work with some really incredible people. I mean, David was 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 one of the first sort of men like that 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 that, that I worked with. But then I, you know, I, I did a movie with Ed Harris where he was playing my dad and he was he, he was really great as a role model because he sort of taught me a lot about acting and about acting professionally and about what it actually meant to try and embody a character. I mean, Ed was a method actor anyway. But in the same movie, there was, you know, Tim Spall and Tim Roth and Pete Postlethwaite and all these really great actors. Ray Winston I worked with when I was very young. Um, And so just being surrounded with really talented people who were very different personalities was was invaluable, really, Um, and and taught me a lot about the business. but also how to be authentic within it, I suppose. Because you are one of those people, I mean, you say authentic, I mean, I think that's the perfect word for you. I always feel like when I see you on TV or, you know, follow you on social media or whatever, there's such a, there seems to be such a happiness and a joy and a zest for life with you. Is that something that has always (laughs) been, unless it's a complete lie, but it seems to me, Charlie, looking in from the inside, you seem to enjoy life and just make the most of every day. I suppose so. I mean, I don't know. I have my, I have my, my dark side too. I don't, I, I don't find it all a walk in the park, but then that's probably, I've had a lot of therapy, so that's probably helped quite a lot, but I've always, um, my sister had a lot of problem with alcohol and drugs and she sobered up. She's passed away now, but she sobered up a long time ago. Um, and she, was very good at living in the moment after that. She was very good at taking things a day at a time and trying to be where she was. And, I, and I've taken a lot of that. Um, I learned a lot of that from her and I, I try very hard to do that um, and, and, and take life as it comes. We all go through tremendous ups and downs. Um, and I suppose it's about knowing that the hard times will pass and we will get, get through them. And I, and I try and be in the world in, in, in the way that I would like other people to be. I try to, to give out good so that, because I think it's the best way of being. So I, I suppose I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I think there's always hope there. And, and generally speaking, I think I'm a happy person. I tend to be a glass half full person more than anything but yeah I mean I I I still have down days I'm not I'm not just always really jolly (laughs) I I think positive positivity is what I always get from you it's that that's what seems to radiate from you um you and I I said we're we're kind of a similar age both in our 50s though you are a few years younger than me let it be said and that shows looking at your face we both sort of went through you know the 80s which was a hideous time in many ways for our community I mean the AIDS crisis uh, you know clause 28 all of that what are your memories of that time I mean because obviously we were both quite young then but I know personally for me it was an era where I you know when I said to my mum that I was gay, the first thing she thought of was AIDS and like, oh, you're going down that route. Was there a similar experience for you? 
Absolutely. Uh, I remember one of the first jokes I heard when I was at primary school um, was, what does gay stand for? Got AIDS yet? And that was what everyone used to that everyone. And, but that was sort of the world that we were in. It was very much about if, if you were gay, you were going to die of AIDS. And it, it, in a way, I talk to younger gay men about, about this now, because I think it is something that affects gay men and they don't get it. And there's part of me that's really annoyed they don't get it. And part of me that's just so relieved because I believe that our generation, I strongly believe that we're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. That I went to so many funerals. I was living in Soho, don't forget, from the age of 15, 14, 15, whatever it was. Um, I saw so many of my friends die, more than I can even count. And when I watched It's a Sin, Russell's show that was on fairly recently about that era, and I was about that age, maybe a bit younger of this, as those characters. And what shocked me watching it as a man of my age now looking back was how young they all were. We, we were kids. We were, we were so young and we, we shouldn't have had to go through that stuff. And I think it's formed our generation in a way. And I... I think we're still trying to process all of that stuff. And so I'm really glad that they don't have to go through it today. I'm really glad that they can take a pill and go and have sex without worrying if it's going to kill them. And I thank God for it every day. I had a friend of mine who had basically had had a living wake when he was when he was dying so he he had a party with all his friends and family to say goodbye because he didn't have much longer and then combination therapy came out and he's still around today and he's perfectly healthy and happy and fine and it was i remember when that changed when suddenly there was this hope of oh it might be okay but it took years and years to get to the point that we're at now and and of course i'm really thankful for it that's a heartwarming story. That gives me that gives me goosebumps. There, it's always lovely to hear a beautiful, happy ever after ending, isn't it? Um, obviously, at that time, I mean, you mentioned obviously, you know, people now. If there was prep and you can have sex and you don't have to worry so much, I remember for me at that period, I was like thinking, "What well, do I have sex? Do I just sort of like carry on and live my life because I don't know what's around the corner, or do I just shut everything away and just you know not go clubbing and not not have sex, not have hookups?" Um, how was it for you at that time? Did you sort of become like introverted with your socializing and going out and clubbing and partying or was it the other extreme yeah I'd, I'd love to say that I was you know really sensible and just kept it in my pants the truth of the matter is I was absolutely the opposite I very much enjoyed my 20s and part of my 30s um but I was always very careful uh but you know I I I thank God every day that I was one of the lucky ones you know I I as I say, so many of my friends weren't. And for no reason, you know, they didn't do anything to deserve becoming HIV positive. They didn't, they just were young and having a good time and having sex and, you know, as they should have been at that age. And and I was, I was just lucky in that I didn't get it. And, you know, I, I don't know why, I suppose I was careful. Um, but it was, yeah, just one of those things, one of those, one of those lucky breaks, I guess. 
we can never sort of like, I don't know, we can't question anything looking back now, really, can we? Because it's like, that's how it was. That's how we dealt with it. We survived. I so agree with you. I mean, about the sort of stress and sort of having lived through that era, when you look back on it, you, you do feel you carried that shame. You, you know, it was seen as a plague for our community. Do you feel there's almost like an element, you know, maybe a small percentage of almost like survivor's guilt that you sort of came through the other side and, you know, luckily, thank the Lord, you know, were unscathed? Absolutely, I do. And and it's very difficult. And that's, I mean, you know, look at, looking back on that time, it, it is so hard when I when I think of all the friends that I lost and and think they didn't do anything differently to me, and, and I I think there was a huge part of me that thought why why have I you know why didn't it happen why didn't it happen to me um, so I think there isn't yeah for sure there's an element of survivor's guilt, and I'm just glad that young people don't have to even think about it today. But sometimes I do think, God, you don't know how lucky you are. (laughs) Let's talk about clubbing then. So obviously, what was your first experience in a gay club? And when did you actually sort of go out clubbing for the first time? What are your memories of that? That moment when it was like, oh, hello, this is my tribe, loving this. The first clubs I went to weren't gay clubs. I remember the first ever nightclub I went to was the WAG Club when I was about 14, and Fat Tony was DJing there, which, God, that's how long I've known Tony. That's shocking. Um, so that was that was the first club that I went to. And then I started going to gay clubs when I was about 18. I mean, I was living in Soho. I lived in a building on Charing Cross Road when I moved out of my parents' place, which was like, it was like that building in It's a Sin, which was just every flat was somebody from the gay community. There was QX magazine was um, in the flat above mine and there were club promoters there and just all sorts of DJs living in the building. So suddenly I was right in the middle of the, I was sort of at the epicentre of the gay scene. So I was, you know, I was out every night. I was on the guest list for all the clubs and I certainly, <laughs> certainly enjoyed it. And in fact, I think by the time me and Cameron got together when I was about thirty two-ish maybe I think we just kind of I'd done it all I was so over club now the idea of going to a club I'm like what it doesn't start until 10 I'm in bed by nine um so I've definitely done my clubbing days but I um I did them hard back then that's for sure (laughs) and then of course living with Rob and you know we were out every night and you can imagine what it was like being in that environment and you know he was probably at the height of his fame back then. So that was that was an experience too. So, I mean, how, I mean, obviously you sort of dived into the world of clubbing and stuff as well. I mean, I love the fact that you were there. I mean, what age were you when you were living in, uh, living in Charing Cross Road then? So I moved out of my parents' place when I was uh, 18. I just left school. Uh, this is in the day where it was really easy to get 100% mortgages and buy flats really cheap. So that's what I did and got a flat on Charing Cross Road. Uh, and I was living, my flatmate at the time was a, an actor called Jeremy Sheffield. I don't know if you remember Jeremy. He was I in Holy for a long time. And he, he was in, in the a, Natalie Bruni video. Yes, for um, Torn. He was absolutely beautiful yes. as well. Gorgeous. Beautiful. He still is. Um, and we were flatmates for probably about 10 years in that flat in Soho off and on. And, uh, yeah, it was just it was just a great time. I mean, I was supposed to go to university in Manchester and then I got a TV series and then that got recommissioned a second year and then you know, I was just off and working and there was no way I was going to 
go off to Manchester when I was living in the centre of London and just living the life. So, yeah, I just got on with it after that. Um, it seems like you've always been happy in your own skin. Is that fair to say? Or have there been moments? I mean, obviously, when you get to a certain age, I think in the teenage years, we're always a bit kind of like, OK, what's going on? But it seems like once you decided this is me, you've always been happy in your own skin. I'm not sure that's true. I think I definitely went through a lot of anxiety. You know, I think therapy helped a lot with that. I think I, I like to think that I know myself pretty well now. I'm getting much better at being boundaried, so I'm quite good at saying, no, that doesn't work for me, whereas I was much more of a people pleaser when I was younger, uh, and that didn't make me happy. So I suppose, but maybe that's just something that comes with age, really. You get much better at saying what you need. So I'm not sure that I've always been completely comfortable in my skin. I'm not sure I'm completely comfortable in my skin now, but I definitely feel like I'm getting there still a gorgeous work in progress um let's talk about let's talk about you living with robbie then i mean how did you end up living with robbie williams what is the story there because i mean that is the probably the fantasy of many teenage girls at the time and a lot of guys at the time as well probably too um how did that happen uh we met in the groucho club where both of us were spending the majority of our evenings in those days and um, we just got on he's he's one of the funniest people i've ever met um i mean i think people sort of you kind of know what you're getting with Rob when you see him on screen. You get, you, you, he's very clear about who he is. And we just hit it off and we got on really well and we moved in together. And then I, th- I, I can't really remember, but I think he went into rehab. Uh, and then when he came out, I sort of stayed with him to kind of just make sure he was all right, really. And we were mates and we were going out. And I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have problems with drugs or alcohol. So I was probably a safe pair of hands. And I was working, I was off on tour doing a play for a while. So I'd come back into him. Yeah, we just, we sort of ended up living together only for a couple of years. But, um, but yeah, they were <laughs> quite an intense couple of years, as you can imagine. I can imagine. Uh, did you watch his documentary recently, the Netflix one? Because, I mean, that was such an eye-opener for so many people. I saw the first episode, not for any reason. I didn't not watch them because I wasn't interested, but just life. I didn't, I didn't get right. I saw the first episode because they, uh, the producers had sent me an email saying, there's a clip, can we use it? And I said, yeah, sure. So I wanted to see what the clip was, uh, which was really interesting because I had no memory of it at all. I didn't remember where we were I didn't remember the conversation I didn't remember the clothes that I was wearing it was like looking at somebody else a really young version of myself thinking god I've really changed so I watched I watched the first episode but I haven't seen the rest I'm sure I'll watch it at some point it's a riveting watch it really really is um has there ever been a clash with your career and your sexuality has there ever been um, an issue where you've had to hide it or you know you go to an audition and it's like oh no actually you know this is gay actor charlie condo as opposed to actor charlie condo who just happens to be gay i'm i'm sure that there are lots of parts that i haven't got because I'm gay, but I'm also sure that there are lots of parts that I have because I'm gay. So I think for me personally, I can't speak for anyone else. I think it's been 50, 50. I wouldn't have got the part in Coronation Street, for example, had I not been gay, because I know that they made a decision to see gay actors. I'm very lucky in my career in that, um, I've always played gay and I've always played straight and that hasn't changed you know, I, I, I still I did a play last year where I was playing straight. I, I, it doesn't. That's never. 
it's never been an issue for me. I think I probably get seen for a lot. If there's a gay, if there's a part of a gay middle-aged man, they'll get me in. Um, but you know, that's just, I've been, I've been around for a long time. People know me and they know that I can do it, but, um, yeah, it hasn't, I know a lot of actors maybe in the generation above me who have complained a lot about missing out on parts because of their sexuality, but it hasn't, I think for every part that I haven't got for being gay, there are parts that I have. So I, I have to take the kind of rough with the smooth with that. Where do you stand on the issue, which is, you know, contentious for some people about, oh, you know, a gay character is best played by a gay actor and, you know, the flip side of that as well. What are your thoughts on that, Charlie? Well, for me, I think it's I think it's really clear, actually. Um, I think our jobs, my job as an actor is to be somebody different. Literally the job, I'm playing somebody else, whoever that is, whatever their sexuality. And I think that's something that should be afforded to every actor. However, it's not an even playing field at the moment. And so whenever it's changing, it's really starting to change now. But I think it's changing because of people like Russell T. Davis, who's been really clear on this issue and saying, I want queer actors for these queer parts, because it hasn't been an even playing field, because... You know, when Brokeback Mountain was made, they wouldn't see gay actors for those parts. But when Queer as Folk was made, those three boys were all straight. It was a different time. And I think it's it's really important that we start to tell queer stories with queer actors so that we can change things. So actually, in the future, and hopefully in the very near future, it doesn't matter. Gay can play straight, straight can play gay, all of that kind of thing. I talked to Julie Hesmanholz, who played Haley in Coronation Street. We had a conversation about this a while ago now. She was brilliant in that part and a, 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 an iconic character, and I can't imagine anybody else doing it as well. But the fact is, is if they cast Haley today, they would cast a trans actor, and rightly so. And she agreed. She said, I shouldn't get that part now in today's society. And I think that's right. But hopefully the pendulum has to swing quite far the other way to equalise things. And hopefully we'll get to a point of equilibrium. It's the same with all diversity across, you know, I talked about my friend Nabil earlier on, who's in Trigger Point at the moment, when we both started acting at the same time. He's Moroccan. And I spent many years coasting very nicely off my white privilege and getting seen for all sorts of different parts. Whereas Nabil struggled along playing drug dealers or terrorists for a really long time. That's all he got seen for. Now things have really changed for him. And he plays all sorts. He's a brilliant actor, so it's great. But he plays all sorts of different types of character. And you think, well, finally, finally that's happening. And so I think the world is changing. In terms of going back to your question, I think in terms of queer parts, yes, it's important that queer actors play queer at the moment. But hopefully that will change again and it and it will even out and we'll all just be able to play whoever, you know, that would that's the dream, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Let's hope that evolution of diversity continues to snowball and continues to gather momentum. Um, let's go back to 2007. And you got the part of Marcus Dent in Coronation Street. Um, so there you were. You had to think then, thought, what did I do in 2007? Um, a gay character on TV at that point, was there a pressure from the producers to say, play it in a certain way? I know you sort of hinted earlier that they didn't want to be like a a Sean Tully kind of character, I'm assuming, that was quite camp, Anthony Cotton. So obviously, was it to go to the other extreme or was it a case of like, okay, Charlie, just be yourself with this role? Well, I I think in a lot of ways, they didn't know what they wanted. um, So they waited to see what I did. 
it became very clear to me early on. One of the, I'd always done lots of comedy. I'd come from a comedy background, done sketch shows. I'd been in Chris Morris's work. I'd done Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. I'd done lots of comedy. And I thought going into Coronation Street, which has such a great traditions of comedic characters, I thought I was going to go in as that kind of a character. And it became quite clear to me early on that that wasn't what they wanted because I was there as the partner of somebody who was already that kind of a character. So I realized quite quickly that that wasn't my role, which disappointed me. I, that, that's kind of what I wanted, but it was fine. But other than that, they never told me anything really. They didn't, they just sort of let me get on with it. And, and I'm sort of grateful for that really because it's sort of that's how they write at Coronation Street. They wait and see who you are, and then they write for you, you know, write for whatever it is that you're bringing to the role. So were you allowed to add to the character? I mean, when you looked at the script, would you be like, well, actually, I don't really think, I, I wouldn't say those particular words. Did you, you know, for want of a better phrase, were you allowed to queer it up? No, you weren't allowed to change the scripts. That was, that was you know, it's very much a writer's show. And the writer, you know, Corey's famous for its writing. Uh, those guys know what they're doing. Um, so no, there was never any of that. We weren't, we, we couldn't change anything. We couldn't really influence anything. In fact, a lot of the time, the actors were the last person, the last people to know what storylines were or what was happening. Um, you mentioned Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. I have to talk about that as well, because you played uh, Nino, wasn't it, on Gimme, Gimme, Gimme? Um, yes. Jonathan Harvey, I mean, great writing. Kathy Burke, just a fantastic actress. Um, you must look back on that now and think, yeah, that was nice to be part of something that has turned out to be so incredibly iconic, even though, like, back in the day, the reviews for it were shocking when it first went on TV. Yeah, it really was. And I don't think any of us knew. I only went, I only, obviously, I only went in for an episode, but Kath was a friend of mine. And so was Jonathan at the time. And that's how I ended up in it. I mean, I think they sort of just, you know, I did go in an audition, but I think they sort of knew that I was going to do the part. Um, and she's still a friend of mine. In fact, she's my um, son's godmother. And at the time, uh, it felt very new and it felt so funny. And yet it got a real slating from the press, particularly the gay press. Didn't like it at all, which really surprised me. And I think there was a lot of, internalized homophobia going on with it because i think it's a brilliant show i think the combination of kath and james and jonathan's incredible writing i think it that's the reason it's iconic because it was and they'd written this show that was very much in the tradition of old sitcom george and mildred days or are you being served it was very much that style of a show <laughs> yeah it was just utterly filthy um, I, I think it's brilliant and I think it stood the test of time. Absolutely. It's something that we would watch, I mean, especially within the queer community, but beyond as well, that people can watch, you know, literally for every day in my life I could watch Gimme, Gimme, Gimme. It brings a smile to your face. Um, let's talk about your family. You mentioned, obviously, your fabulous husband, Cameron. Uh, you have children now as well. Um, when did the decision come that you wanted to sort of be the family man? I'd always wanted kids uh, ever since I was a teenager. And then, of course, when I came out, I realised that that was going to be tricky because in those days you couldn't adopt. Co-parenting wasn't a thing. So for a lot of gay men, you either got married to a woman and went down that lie or you just parked it and thought, this isn't going to be possible for me. And I never thought that, but I do. In fact, funnily enough, Kathy Burke is one of the reasons uh, for me having kids because she, um, we were very good friends and, and she's... <laughs> 
I, I used to talk to her about it and say, I feel really sad that I really want kids and I don't, you know, I, I don't see how that's going to happen. And she said in, in, <laughs> in her pretty uncompromising way, don't, don't be stupid. She didn't use those words. <laughs> as you she said, if you want kids, have kids, find a way of doing it. Don't complain about it. Don't just say, oh, I want it and don't do anything. Find a way, do it. If you want kids, have kids. And I thought she's absolutely right. And so then I started talking about when I have children rather than if I have children and just trying to change my own mindset. And I didn't know how I would do it, but I did have those conversations with straight friends of mine who were single, who were perhaps, you know, getting older or whatever it was. And and Catherine was one of those people that we we talked about it with. And she said, if I get to 40 and I'm still single, we should do it together. And that's that's what happened. So, yeah, now we've we've got two of them and they're teenagers now. I mean, it's, you know. <laughs> How does that feel to be the, well, the daddy in more ways than one, Charlie? Yeah, it's hilarious, isn't it? <laughs> There's a very big difference between being a gay dad and a gay daddy, as my DMs will attest. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's kind of funny. As I, I'm, I guess I'm now in that category, aren't I, of being a, a, a daddy type? Mm. I mean, very much so. I'm 51. Um, but it's quite hard to, uh, to to get off on somebody calling you daddy when you are an actual daddy <laughs> so i associate that word with somebody calling me in to do their homework or to you know i don't know change their nappy or whatever it is that i've had to do so it is kind of funny my kids are brilliant i know i'm biased obviously i'm biased they're really lovely great kind responsible humans um everyone said oh you wait till the teenage years it's really difficult and it's really we're not getting any of that my daughter's wonderful she's 14 she's she's a lovely girl my my son is 12 all he wants to do is play football but um he's yeah they're 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 happy kids and so i i thank god every day that we've got something right with them um, you've been a real sort of trailblazer i think for same-sex parenting as well i mean you mentioned earlier uh you used to write a column in the guardian it's like you, you know you set up a company as well didn't you out with the family and um, what was that all about it was just about trying to bring visibility. I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to be a dad, but I didn't see anybody that was doing it. I couldn't say there weren't any gay people that I knew. There were, I knew that lesbians sort of sometimes quietly were having kids in the background, but I didn't know any. I didn't know any on the TV. or And, and I think it was a sort of perfect storm, really. I, I had kids when I was just starting at Coronation Street and I was suddenly getting a profile and I thought... I've actually got an opportunity to do something here. I can be that person that talks about it. And I can and and in a way, I think I was sort of challenging myself. I thought if I do this publicly, if I make a a, a stand and show what I'm doing and talk about it weekly in a column, I can't mess it up. I have to be the best dad that I can be. Uh, and 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 it was almost like a challenge. I was because I wanted to be a really good parent. And so I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this. And then if, you know, it's not like I'm a role model. I like, I prefer the phrase possibility model. If people see what I'm doing and think I want a bit of that, I'm going to do that too, then great, go for it. Don't do it the way I did it because that's my life, but do it the way that you can and don't let your sexuality stay in the way or get in the way. It shouldn't make any difference when you are changing nappies or doing homework or treating your children for nits or whatever it is. 
the last thing you're thinking about is who you want to sleep with. It's just not, it doesn't come into play. And of course, nor should it. And so I think anybody should be able to have kids if they want. And I think since those days, nobody was was doing it then. And since those days, the conversation has changed. Younger queer people talk about being parents now. If they don't want to have kids, they don't have to have kids. But at least it's part of the conversation. At least they know it's an option. And since, you know, I don't like to say it was a trendsetter, but, you know, everyone came, you know, Elton and David started doing it. You know, there were Ricky Martin, H from Steps, whoever it is, there were lots of gay parents that now have started doing it. And it's become much more commonplace. It's not something that's unusual anymore in the way that it was when we started to do it. And I like to think that I played a little part in that, actually. I think you did definitely. I mean, when I think about people that have children that are gay men, it's like you are the first person that I think of. And you're right. It's like, you know, Elton, you know, massive profile. But I always think of you first. Um, I, I, <laughs> well, I always think Elton, you know, I, I love Elton, but I, I, he's very he's in a very different sort of league to me. I don't imagine that Elton struggles with a double buggy on the escalators at John Lewis. Um, <laughs> you know, I think I think he's probably got a different type of parenting. I'm sure he's a great dad. He's a lovely man. But um, but yeah, I think I was on Coronation Street, of course, and I had a profile, but I didn't have that level of fame. And and we live very ordinary lives. So it was quite good to be able to write about our experiences of parenting as ordinary people who just happen to be on the telly, you know. I have two grandchildren, Charlie, uh, two granddaughters. And one of my, well, my, my, my husband was married and I'm blessed to have a, a family that rude. One of, one of my joys in life is picking the kids up from school. I just love it. I mean, did you always enjoy the school run? Uh, I'd love to say yes, I always enjoyed it. No, a lot of the time I didn't. I didn't want to get out of bed. It was a pain in the ass because you can't just, that's the thing about being a parent is all of a sudden somebody else's needs come first. So you can't just get up, you've got to get up and make breakfast and get the clothes ready and get the teeth brush and all that stuff and then drive them to school or take them. I took my son to school this morning, actually. It's great because now his secondary school is across the road. So it makes it a lot easier. I did, however, love being involved in that way I, I you know my dad wasn't around when I was growing up and I vowed that I wouldn't be that so I've been very involved in their school lives not so much now that they're at secondary school and I, and I sort of let them dictate what they want now if they don't want me around I'm not around it's you know it's it's about them um but I loved it I was a governor at the primary school and just got very involved in all of that stuff because that's what I wanted. I wanted to do all that. Do you think they might follow in your footsteps? Would they like to become actors? Is Have they talked about what they might like to do in life? No, I don't think so. My son can't see any reason that he won't be playing for Arsenal in the next few years. So fair play to him for that <laughs> confidence. Um, and my daughter, no, no, she's not interested. I mean, she's they're young. They don't really know. She She's really interested in interior design. She likes that kind of stuff. I don't think either of them want to be actors. They're always a bit bemused by it. They sort of don't really understand, particularly because I still get recognised. And so, and they're always a bit like, they just look at me sort of weirdly. I don't know. They, they don't seem interested in that side of things. And I'm really pleased for that actually because it's a very odd life <laughs> it's like who are you you're just my dad you're not on the telly dad, um, why are you having your picture taken you look weird yeah. you know the fact that you are famous though means that you have been able to champion lgbtqia plus rights and you have done ever since i think you've been in the public eye was that something that was always very important to you 
I suppose so. I always had a sense of wanting to try and help if I could. When I was probably about 19 when I started working for the Terence Higgins Trust, or THT as it is now, uh, on the phones. Uh, and I think that was probably because of having so many friends that were HIV positive at the time. So I started working for them and I, I, I worked for them for, volunteered for them rather, for maybe seven or eight years. And then as I, and I've always done things like that, I've always been involved in, in, in charities. And when I started to get a profile, the way in which I was involved with charities changed. I didn't have the kind of time that I used to have but it meant that I could be patrons of charities or I could go to events or I could auction a dinner or whatever it is with myself. And I've always tried to do things like that. I just believe that we should be trying to, I think it's the duty of the strong to protect the weak, right? And I think that's something that I've always, that was something that my mum instilled in me from a young age. And I really tried to live by that. I think if you can help, it's your duty to help. That's what I what I believe, and I and I still try to live like that. And that help has been recognised as well, because obviously you were Attitudes Man of the Year back in what was it, twenty twelve? I think it was. <laughs> um, did you actually win a trophy okay. for that? And if so, have you still got it? Yeah, it's right here. It's right up up up, up on my up on my shelf. <laughs> yeah, I'm very praise. proud of that. I wasn't expecting it, and I knew it was really interesting. It was the first awards, the first Attitude Awards that they'd had, and I knew that I'd won something because they wanted to do a photo shoot. So I went in and Catelyn Moran was there, who was a friend of mine. She was at the photo shoot and I said, oh my God, what have you won? And she said, I've won Honorary Gay or something. I can't remember. I think it was Honorary Gay that she won. And I said, oh, that. And she, she said, what have you won? And I said, I don't know. They won't tell me for some reason. And so, of course, we didn't know what any of the categories were or anything like that. And so I did the photo shoot and I did an interview and I, it was very weird. I just assumed that I'd got something for being on Corrie, um, but I couldn't quite figure out what it was. And it was only when I got to the awards that they had all the covers up on the, up on the wall and there was my cover of me sitting there and it said Man of the Year. And I was like, oh, oh I got the big one. <laughs> Which was fantastic. I loved it. And I think that was because, you know, I was on Corrie at the time. I had a big profile and I was writing about being a same-sex parent and I was doing a lot of charity stuff. And I think it was sort of all of that stuff at the, at the time. Um, but, yeah, it was a, it was a huge honour. It really was. I mean, I think you've been very instrumental in helping with the progression of our community just by being yourself on TV, in interviews, wherever you may appear. Um, what do you feel about the state of our community now? How do you feel it's changed over recent years? Well, that's a, I mean, that's a big question, isn't it? It's, I think there's, it's come so far. I mean, I, I could never have imagined a world in, in which people were you know allowed to walk down the street holding hands or two men could get married you know with that just was it wasn't I think you weren't allowed to get married when I was young you couldn't you know it, things have changed so much and it seems so much easier in so many ways and yet we look at what's happening across the world and in places where it's still illegal to be gay and we look at you know the the way that people are still persecuted and 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 it really depresses me because i think god this is the world that my kids are growing into 
when will it end? When will we get to a point where there just isn't that prejudice? Uh, I have hope and I like to think that we'll get there and I think we're moving in the right direction, but there are still terrifying people across the world in huge positions of power that want to take our rights away from us again. Look at what's happening in America at the moment with gay rights, with women's rights, you know, the right to choose, all of that kind of stuff. So I d- I'm never complacent. I think we, we, the rights that we have here are hard won, but they can so easily be taken away. Um, and I think people have to remember that, that that doesn't, we are by no means, maybe the, you know, the battle is won, but the war's not over. I think. And and I think it's really important that people remember that and remember where we've come from because we don't ever want to go back there. Absolutely. We have to remember the fragility of it all, but also the strength of what we've done to get to where we are today. To end the podcast, I'd like to have a little bit of fun because you've been so beautifully honest about so many things in your life. But let's have a little bit of fun now. A little reward, if you like. You're able to hold the perfect dinner party. You are allowed to have five perfect dinner guests. They can be LGBTQIA plus or otherwise. They can be living. They can be dead. Make them famous so we know who you're talking about, please. Um, Who would you pick and why? There are a few friends of mine that I would I would have, and they're in the public eye, so I think I can have that. Kath, Kathy Burke is one because she's just brilliant company, although she'd probably only stay for, like, the main course and then she'd go home because she doesn't like being out. But I'd have Kath. I would have my friend Andy Oliver, who is a TV presenter. Now she does a great British menu, one of my oldest, closest friends. And since my sister died... Andy is my sister, really, um, and I depend on her a lot. She's the person I go to um, for advice. I hate the fact that I'm saying this publicly because she might find out and then she'll use that to tease me. Would there not be a pressure having Andy Oliver in the fact that she's such a brilliant chef? Would you not worry about the food you're serving? No, I was thinking she'd cook. Sorted. Um, I'm not stupid. I would like... uh, One of my best friends, Paul Bettany, who I don't get to see very often, who lives in America, he's the person I go to when I'm in trouble. Uh, He's the bad breakups I've had in the past, and he said to me, get on a plane and come here, I'll look after you. He's he's that, that person for me, and I don't get to see him very often. So they're the three people that I know. I think I would have Michael Cashman. Mm. Uh, Michael Cashman has been a hero of mine for as long as I can remember. And and in a way, I suppose he and I are quite similar. You know, we got profiles from being in soaps. We were very adamant that we were going to try and change the world that we lived in. He set up Stonewall with Ian McKellen. You know, I mean, he's he's been so political before he actually went into politics. And he's a wonderful man. And he's somebody who is still fighting. And I would love to have that for myself. I would, you know, I'd like to see myself being that kind of person that never stops. Gosh, I guess I need somebody else, don't I? David Bowie. (laughs) That seems really random. But David Bowie was my sister's hero. And I I grew up listening to his music. Um, And I think, to me, it's quite clear that David Bowie was a straight man. But what a wonderful straight man who played with his sexuality. If you watch early interviews of him talking about queer people, the community, diversity, he was so ahead of his time. And I think he's quite inspiring in that way. 
as well as being beautiful and an incredible musician. And we had the same birthday, actually, funnily enough. So, yeah, maybe him. Maybe he'd be my fifth. I think that would be a perfect dinner party. And I love the fact that maybe Kathy Burt would disappear after the starter and be off home. That's, that's even more you genius. <laughs> um, you're in a gay club you're in a queer safe space and you want to dance what record gets you on the dance floor oh what record well you see i i immediately go back to my youth when i was growing up i was really into early hip-hop but also soul music so you know i can take or leave pop music if i'm really honest i'd love to say that it was Kylie or Madonna or Beyonce, but it, it would be it would be Otis Redding, it would be Aretha Franklin, it would be Stevie Wonder. That's the kind of music that gets me up on my feet. That's a, that's definite class right there. Um, what's the best experience <laughs> you've had in a gay nightclub in a gay safe space? Uh, well, that I can talk about publicly. Yes, please. <laughs> Feel free, Charlie. Feel free. In podcast land, you can say what you like. When I first started going to gay clubs, I was really there were a bunch of drag queens that sort of took me under their wing. Wynne Austin was one, Miss Winston, as she was known back then, More Valance, Barbie. There were all these drag queens, um, uh, Miss Kimberly. There were a whole bunch of them that are still around today, but they were sort of, they really looked after me when I was this young, innocent, wide-eyed little kid out on the scene. And I felt really protected by them. And so I, my memories of gay clubs are being with those people and just having an absolute ball. That's a beautiful memory. Um, have you ever done the gay holiday? Have you ever done the, like, you know, you go off to Sitges or you go off to Gran Canaria or you go off with the lads to wherever it may be, Mykonos? Have you ever done the, the stereotypical gay holiday? I mean, I've been away with gay mates, but not to one of those kind of resorts. And I think, you know, I've, and I've had a family for such a long time that I can't imagine doing that now. But I, I'd sort of like to. I always thought I'd kind of enjoy going on a gay cruise or something like that. So maybe we'll do that now that we're, I was going to say we're middle-aged men. We're not middle-aged anymore. (laughs) Moments passed. But it's never too late. You have done so much in your life, but the final question, and it may be a difficult one to answer because I think there's so much to choose from. When you look back, I mean, here you are now in your early 50s. When you look back at what you've done so far, because I'm sure there's so much more to come, what's your proudest rainbow-flavoured moment so far? Well, I suppose probably the column writing about being a gay parent weekly every Saturday for however long it was. That felt like quite an achievement. It was really hard as well because I'm not a writer. I don't know. I think maybe setting up a company like Out With The Family, which was putting on events for gay families across the country. I was very lucky. We lived in central London, you know. There were there were gay people, gay families, and everyone was pretty accepting. But I was well aware that there were people across the country who were literally the only gays in the village. And some of them had kids. And that was really isolating. So I set this company up with my friend Linda Riley, who um, was also a gay parent herself. And we, we wanted to bring together lots of gay families for the kids as well to be able to see other families like themselves and whatever. And that felt like a real achievement. I think that's a beautiful moment to, uh, to, to say is your proudest one. Um, Charlie Condu, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you for being so candid, so honest, so funny, so amusing and just so genuine as well. And for proving that indeed your life has been a gay old time. <laughs> 
That's it for this episode of A Gay Old Time. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Charlie as much as I did. He was a great person to chat with, I've got to say. If you'd like to experience more Rainbow Joy, then please subscribe and follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you're listening right now, maybe on the KDO app. And do share it to anyone else you think would love to listen in. If you'd like to follow the podcast online and find out more, then head to the Instagram account at A Gay Old Time Podcast. And you can also find out more at all the W's nigelmay.net thanks a million to Juliet at pineapple audio production for making everything so sparkly and gorgeous i'll be back soon with another episode featuring a deep and meaningful with another inspirational individual until then from me nigel may sending all the love and hoping that whatever you're up to if it applies to you that you're having a gay old time enjoy enjoy